Welcome to Ask Andy featuring Andrew Redleaf. Today, Chris Bemis will be asking Andy a few questions. Thanks for letting me join you. My name is Chris Bemis, and I've had the pleasure of working with Andy for a little over a decade in a previous life, and in mostly just a mathematician who does some finance. I think that's probably the best introduction I can give. And, and a good one it was? Yeah, very much so, yes. Brevity is all I'm shooting for now. So I sent you a couple questions, and I don't know if you have a preference on where we start. Let's start at the beginning. I have a lot to say on modeling and the use of models. That's where I wanted to start as well. <laughs> That's great. So maybe we'll start and finish there. I like that. That's fantastic. So the question broadly from 30,000 feet is, what is the most wrong but most useful math model you've used in your career in finance? You know, I actually, I'm going to start by flipping that a little bit and talking about models that are clearly right, but useless or dangerous or not helpful. It's my suspicion that more people have gone broke with good models, accurate models, correct models, than with something that's wrong. And in a version of Keynes, Keynes is saying that the market can be irrational longer than your solvent. So I think you know, one thing to remember and consider is, you know, for the most part, people are modeling what you might call economic value. What is something worth? And with the assumption or the idea that, you know, over time, everything has to trade around where it's worth. There are a number of sort of simple things that you can see that the model more or less has to be right, but there's not really an explanation for trading patterns. So you have share classes, which can actually be identical, be it a company that has shares listed in Australia and the UK or the UK and the Netherlands, by absolutely identical, but they trade at different prices. And a lot of people went broke in the Volkswagen share class arbitrage, you know, sort of similarly, if you have a passive hold code, economically, it more or less, it's worth the sum of its parts, but very frequently it doesn't trade there. A story from, at this point, fairly early in my career, at the time it felt pretty late in my career, but 1988, the KKR takeover of RJR Nabisco, and I was on the option floor at the time, trading options. It started, there were rumors of a deal for RJR, and I started with a trade called a reversal, you know, short stock, long call, short put, which implied that a disconnect between the puts and the calls that would be accounted for by a big dividend or a deal that had a different front end and back end. And then and now, front end loaded deals are illegal. As a matter of law, the back end consideration has to be the same as the front end consideration. Now, everybody knew you can fudge a little, but how much can you fudge? You're going to need a nationally recognized uh, financial institution to vouch for the value of the back end. So, you know, how much can they cheat? Well, you know, that. Turned out to be a lot, but the deal comes out and it's highly front-loaded. I lose a bunch of money on that position. I didn't have that much money at the time. So the question was, you know, how to price options in this takeover situation where there's a front end and there's a back end and there's uh, some probability that the deal goes through and some probability that it doesn't. Starting out behind with my Mac, 
I priced everything straightforward. You know, the parameters are probability of the deal going through, the value of the back end if it goes through, or the value of the stock if the deal gets canceled. And so I wrote the value of everything in terms of those three entities and lots of different things things priced. So you had more than three equations and three unknowns. Equations were simple, all linear, and you can take all the partial derivatives. With the use of that, I was able to construct some pure arbitrage kind of positions, you know, where things where I was long the back end at an absurdly low price and made money if the deal fell apart. After I'd written that out and figured it, I put on a decent-sized position, planning on getting the money back that I'd lost when it started. As trading continued, mark to the market, my position got worse and worse. You know, if I was long, the front end of the deal was 125. If I was long, the back end of the deal at 50 would probably trade it down to 40 or something like that. So a lot of the rest of my money on a mark to the market basis was gone. Clearing firm told me I need I needed to put some more money in. So I showed my dad the model, convinced him that was right and that we had a pure arbitrage position. And he gave me a fair chunk of his retirement account. And I gave him an equity interest. I did a little more. It continued to get wider. And then the gist of the position, I don't remember it specifically, but it was sort of right to be long calls, short puts, short stock in different combinations. Where I was clearing one of the principles of the firm fancied himself a risk arbitrageur. And in their world, there's a deal, you're long stock, and you may be long puts and short calls to hedge it or whatever, but the heart and soul of his position is assuming that there's a 100% chance that the deal goes through. And, you know, In any event, as it deteriorated and the mark-to-market equity in the account continues to go down, at some point, one morning at like 9.30, 10 o'clock, I got the tap on the shoulder and they said, we don't like your position. You need to deposit an absurd amount of money or we're going to buy you in. So, you know, I explained the position to them that it was, in fact, a clean arbitrage and verifying the dictum that the margin clerk doesn't understand value. That They said, well, that may be right, but we don't care. You know, you need to deposit $2 million or we're going to buy you in. The first thing I did, I grabbed a friend of mine on the floor and I said, I have to show you something. I had my Mac with me. Here's the position. Here's the modeling. It's a pure arbitrage position. I need help. He brought in his partner who actually was a former math professor at the University of Chicago. They had, in fact, a similar position, but I showed him how I modeled it and the position I had and while we had similar positions, I showed him that you know my position was in fact better, not optimum. And you know, as academic, he said, "Well, you know, I mean, your model's trivial," which it was. I mean, it was very simple, but it was right. You know, I'm I'm a mathematician. Uh, you haven't shown me anything. I don't know. And we weren't using it, and your position is a little better than ours. But it doesn't really matter. We're fat and happy. Um, <laughs> there's nothing for us to do. So next, I went to Kessler. I'm not sure if Asher was in the room, too. I said, here's the model, which was really easy. It was just linear equations. Uh, here's the model. Here's the position. You can walk through what happens in every scenario. And you can also sort of, if you want to be long, the deal happening. You can construct a position that gets rid of everything else and just bets on the deal and blah, blah, blah. 
will you guys, you know, Kessler and Asher, will, will you guys take me on? Will you guys clear the position and let's make a deal? Uh, and they did. You know, we ended up starting Arbitrate and so forth. So uh, between what I'd promised my father and what I had to give Kessler and Asher, it was the producers. The mm-hmm. <laughs> My economic interest was pretty much gone. I was just staying, <laughs> trying to, to stay alive. Of course, you know, like, Ultimately, the deal did go through, but you know everything I modeled was correct. It was an experience that very easily could have ended my career. Mm-hmm. You know, it was so unpleasant <laughs> that if, in fact, you know, when it was over and I'd gotten you know some money back, my dad had done well, Kessler and Asher had done well. If there was anything else in life that I could have done to support myself, I would have. But what the experience highlights is the difference between, you know, economic risk and financing risk. Mm -hmm. And financing risk, even when something has a relatively short sort of termination debt and is kind of straightforward in the sense of not requiring any more than three linear equations and three unknowns. And time and time again, you see sort of people look to get very, very precise on economic value with very little focus on financing risk. You know, if you look, one thing I'm kind of curious about, but within the financial literature, there's almost nothing about, you know, how to think about or quantify or even model financing risk. So, you know, even you have a question, you know, like what's the value of a set of loan covenants to the lender and what's the cost to the financee? I mean, people don't really think about that. They're almost always, you know, kind of take it or leave it or there are no easy trade-offs for people who are paying five and three quarters for a covenant light package, but a covenant package is five and a quarter. And here's how we've determined that the right price. So more and more, but really starting after 1988, I think less about economic risk and more about financing risk, particularly in situations where you can figure out the economic portion pretty easily. And I think when one looks at bond pricing for public companies, you know, one of my views is the rating agencies don't weight market cap enough. Mm-hmm. And the point of the market cap is what it does in terms of financing risk. If a company has a liquid, highly valued public stock, they can sell stock and pay off debt. If they don't have that, they don't. Whenever you're short stock, it's sort of obvious that you have financing risk, both in the sense of it can conceivably go anywhere and require you to put up more money. You have to be able to borrow the stock. That's a financing transaction. It can become unborrowable or prohibitively expensive. Or if the stock goes up, the company can issue shares. And economically, that's kind of the equivalent of being bought in on a portion of your position as they've translated some. And you were presumably trying to value the business. And now, you know, they have the business plus a bunch of cash. You know, I think it's interesting looking at a CLO structure and owning a commercial bank. The equity in a CLO is a lot like the equity in a bank. And the interesting and appealing feature of the CLO is the CLO has bankruptcy remote vehicle, more or less perfectly matched financing. There is no financing risk at the structure level. 
But the liabilities of a CLO cost quite a bit more than the liabilities of a bank. My view and kind of the thesis in owning them is that there's very, very moderate, modest level of financing risk owning a well-managed bank and that you're well more than compensated for it by the funding advantage. But, you know, if deposit insurance went away or the cost of deposit insurance was raised materially, the value of having a bank goes down a lot. So it is a question where the primary thing to think about is financing risk, if one can operate reasonably economically. I should let you, you know, maybe comment or something. <laughs> oh, I do have questions. But, you know, you, you mentioned at the very beginning that the literature is lacking in this regard. And you're exactly right in the modeling of most financial instruments. At this stage of the game, there's an attempt to model stochastic rates. You know, you, you might have some mathematical structure of how you think rates are going to move around or something like that in terms of financing but I think what I hear you saying is that is a poor proxy for your actual ability to finance. So in the story you gave, I mean, it was, for lack of a better word, gumption to be able to go find the producers, as you said, to keep the position on. And that's different than just identifying what the prevailing rate might be which is really all that math finance has going for it. There isn't a statement of modeling an ability of an individual to finance their position. Actually, one of the questions I do have is, was it, you know, with respect to that first position you described back in 88, was it the math that you had developed or the dynamics of the particular position that gave you the conviction to keep going? Well, I didn't really develop any math. You know, it was, <laughs> I wrote down what the math was. That actually is pretty much all mathematicians do. <laughs> Sometimes it's harder than others. And this was, you know, you know, this was a word problem from ninth grade algebra. <laughs> and then the partial derivatives. But it wasn't constructing a, uh, <laughs> a multi-dimensional Hilbert space somewhere. <laughs> Overrated. <laughs> I was sort of sure of the math, which, you know, segues to another point in terms of the way I think. My principal high school math teacher was a real stickler for rigor and logic, you know, sort of uh, precise definitions and explicit assumptions as a, um, you know, as opposed to, you know, most of physics, where if you need something to be continuous, assume that it's continuous. <laughs> you know, you need it to be differentiable everywhere. Assume it's a nice function. You know, I was acutely aware, you know, mathematically, if you have an if-then statement and the if part is always false, the then part can be whatever you want. And the if-then statement is true. Um, when I first started looking at convertibles, convertible bonds, at the time, typically the model, uh, you'd have a bond value piece and an option value piece. And right away, it occurred to me, on the bond piece, you assume that there's a probability of default and a recovery rate or, or not. But then when you do a Black-Scholes option calculation, you know, log normal distribution of future equity prices, there's no possibility. You assume that there's no possibility of default. And from all my high school math 
experience. You know, like this was the major sin one could commit, assuming at the same time X and not X. To me, the model had to be wrong. And one of the first things I did was make a calculation. I said, let's make the assumption that the convertible bond has no gamma, that its sort of stock equivalent is constant for any stock price. And then if that's true, what does the credit curve look like as the stock price goes up and down? I wasn't asserting the truth of the assumption, but then looking at what that curve looked like, I could eyeball it. And depending upon what that curve looked like, if I thought it was steeper or less steep, than what one would expect. I could conclude that, in fact, that the bond had positive gamma or negative gamma and decide whether it was a good deal or not based on what derived credit curve looked like. And after all these years, I still find that formulation useful and the tool useful, even though the assumption is clearly wrong. Yeah, you're starting from an explicitly wrong assumption. Right, right. But you're deriving things that are consistent with the wrong assumption as opposed to having inconsistent assumptions. <laughs> yes. I said that's all the mathematicians do. You know, really, at the end of the day, most mathematical modeling is just constructing a formulation. So anytime you ever have a solution mathematically, all it says is you had a formulation first. So formulation always precedes the solution. In this case, what you did is very interesting in the sense that you knew that you were going to start from wrong assumptions, but from there gained insight. So you start with a wrong model, quote unquote, to get the financial insight. I've said in other formulas, more or less every finance paper says, if this, then that, set of assumptions and set of conclusions. Mm -hmm. But what implies or argues, you know, I know we don't have this, but what we want to do is say, if almost this, then it has to be almost that. Right. But exactly what the almost means in both sides of the formulation isn't made explicit. It's kind of, you know, like I went to college thinking I was going to be a physics major. I didn't know that. <laughs> but uh, I didn't like physics because, you know, like all the time they do that. If this, then that, well... You know, we don't quite have this, but we have almost this. So it's probably almost that and used to drive me nuts. <laughs> you didn't like the idea that we're all just point masses when it's convenient? <laughs> well, or um, you might appreciate this. When we very, very briefly, you know, I asked Blaze to teach me some physics. Mm -hmm. He gave me this Feynman paper, which was talking about the principle of least action. In his proof, he says, you know, change the path a little bit. Mm -hmm. But what does moving the path a little bit mean? And it turns out you can actually construct a counterexample, uh, a mathematically possible, not likely in the real world, but a mathematically possible counterexample to the theorem. And it was up night after <laughs> night. You know, what, is, what does it mean? <laughs> You can't do this mm -hmm. in his uh, phaser interpretation of quantum electrical dynamics. You have to add up all the paths. Yeah, you integrate over all the paths, yes. Those mathematical examples of when things break like that, being a mathematician, I strain to appreciate them anymore. They all seem kind of pathological to me. <laughs> 
there is a sense of like most of the stuff actually works fine until you think really hard about something pathological that can break it. And I, I question at this point, should we worry about those pathological things? Fair, fair. Yeah. Though the whole thing, you know, I mean, all of quantum mechanics is pathological. <laughs> this is true. And that's an example where the model is so effective in its standing as creating experiments that have all validated the model or in its position in helping us understand physical phenomena, even though its implications are so odd as to boggle the mind. I mean, that's a case where the model is nigh unto perfect for its scope, but it kind of breaks our human brains to say why. Yeah, yeah. At a certain level, nobody believes quantum mechanics, but everybody believes it. Yes. I mean, you have to believe it for the measurements and the predictions and all those things, but then you have to ask yourself, what are we actually saying here? So actually, I have another question, and I don't know if this is possible to quantify, but you mentioned in establishing the problem the example of share class arbitrage. And rather than talking about what share class arbitrage is, my curiosity is, do you have a sense in this spirit of financing being so pivotal, what extent that plays in something as simple as share class arbitrage? Or if it's not financing, is there another dimension that affects these path dependent or time dependent, uh, but certainly economically in terms of value problems? Prior to the 1998 and the long-term capital debacle, I don't think anybody ever really thought about common ownership as a factor. It's not just that long-term capital's positions could all be extremely correlated in a certain unusual set of circumstances, but a lot of people whose financing ability was going to be correlated to long-term capital's financing ability owned kind of the same things. Nobody thought about that, I don't think, before 98. I think in terms of determining prices today, it's huge. And in fact, how they move. So if you look at a group of economically uncorrelated securities, but the group that owns them is extremely undiverse, they'll be moved by the common things that move the group. Yeah, so financing is almost a reason or an explanation in a almost a causality sense of contagion. Right, right. So ownership of this thing that you're certain of in terms of its economic value may be impacted greatly just by this, this ownership of a small group. Yeah, you know, I think for a lot of the last 10 years, you know, what, you know people talk about hedge fund roach motels. Mm-hmm. And it's true. And the hedge funds do economically sensible things, but that something is owned almost exclusively by hedge funds, both in terms of how it's likely to trade, but also in terms of some economic value, it's a huge negative. I mean, now, you know, post-Dodd-Frank, where for systemically important things, it's explicit that different classes of creditors can be treated differently. You know, even if you don't want the thing that all the hedge funds own, it's worth less because all the hedge funds own it than if it were owned by a more sympathetic group or a more politically influential group. Yeah, I find myself sympathetic to hedge funds. (laughs) 
Maybe we need to work on branding. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they have the single worst uh, pet peeve of my, you know, um, Bernie Madoff was not a hedge fund. He was an investment advisor. Yes. <laughs> you know, he was your Merrill Lynch investment advisor. But, you know, he was always referred to as a hedge fund. You're right. You know, if somebody said they were a realtor, the Association of Realtors would go sue them if they weren't. I think the hedge fund community needs to put a copyright or a trademark on the name. I mean, would have done wonders in that case. Well, I mean, maybe. You know, when I mentioned earlier that I didn't think the bond rating agencies weighted market cap enough as a function of financing ability, I think historically companies went public for two reasons. One, to allow the founders, owners to cash out and maybe still have some control or ownership stake. But the more generic idea was to give companies access to capital, that a public company would have better, easier, more reliable, whatever, access to capital. That we've sort of seen for many, many companies, they have more access to capital as private companies. And kind of for any public company, being public can either help or hurt you in terms of access to capital. If you have a well-traded, highly valued stock, it helps. But if your stock is trading poorly, it really, really limits your financing capabilities. As kind of a public minority shareholder, if you own depressed shares, one of the things, even if you're not borrowing money, you own fully paid for shares, you might say, you know, I don't have any financing risk because I'm not going to get a margin call and other circumstances aren't going to force me to sell my stock. In fact, you do. If the company is desperate to raise money, you might be subject to a highly dilutive deal that you can't participate in. There's a second order financing risk, even when you don't think you have first order financing risk. Your statement on the under-appreciation of market cap in the ratings agencies is, I think, exactly right. When you look at the cross-section of hazard rates, so the variable that gives you some sense of probability of default for a cross-section of credit, market cap is extremely explanatory. I mean, if that sentence makes any sense, but just the idea that market cap technically shouldn't, in quotes, be something that explains the cross-section of hazards, but it does. And I think what you outline is exactly the case. It's the access to funding. The other thing you kind of point out, though, and I don't know how one might actually go about this in a mathematical way, but the first derivative of market cap is probably has bearing as well. Like, are you doing well or are you doing poorly? If you're doing well, you know, your, your first derivative is probably positive in the market cap sense, and you probably have better chances of funding. If you're doing poorly, your first derivative is negative. And th those things probably go hand in hand, not just the level of your market cap with respect to the rest of your capital structure, but the direction you've been taking. So I think we've covered a bunch. Do you think this is probably a good point to stop? Yeah, you know, I, I think probably. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, thank you very much. I think we outlined a strain of research for a whole bunch of mathematicians and maybe some finance people too. You know, when I was going to get a PhD in math, I had absolutely no idea 
what I could possibly do as a dissertation and whether I could, you know, possibly get a result, maybe because it's younger. The topics for finance PhD dissertations are just, at least for me, really easy to think of. Math finance is this really special category, I think, in that, one, the questions are still very open, and two, the industry and the math are both really amenable to grabbing from wherever you need. It's not the case that if you're going to be a math finance person or somebody studying these things that you have to do PDEs or you have to do you know, optimization or you have to do statistics. I think one of the really interesting things, and I think it's reflective of the people I know in finance, is you just find the tools you need to understand the problem at hand. All right, Andy. Thank you for letting me crash your podcast uh, today. <laughs> this was uh, this was great. Well, it was fun. Thank you for listening to Ask Andy. If you would like to submit a question, please email askandypodcast at gmail.com. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs.